from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome to The Set, a podcast that explores the motivations, experiences, and secrets to success from interesting people in and out of the field of surgery. With some humor mixed in, I'm your host, Sir Josh Mesrich, a transplant surgeon, part-time comedian, and somewhat successful fashion model in Madison, Wisconsin, home of the Badgers. The celebrity I most look like is Brad Pitt, although lately some people are saying I look more like Matthew McConaughey since I have been growing my hair out during COVID. All right, all right, all right, all right. That month with Charlie on the vascular service was memorable. I got to know Charlie better, learned his style, and eventually we became an efficient machine. I actually kind of enjoyed working with him. I can remember on rounds when we would go to see a patient and we had to redress a wound that we had uncovered at the beginning. Charlie had us working like a military unit. He would bark out, dressings at the ready, prepare to move, move. On the command, prepare to move, the medical student would hand me the sponge or whatever part of the dressing we were up to. On move, I would hand it to Charlie and he would place it on the patient. This was repeated with the tape or other parts of the dressing until the wound was entirely dressed. Then he would yell, march, and we would walk out of the room. Weird, I know. I'm sure the patients thought it was quite bizarre. One thing I do remember, we had this great medical student. His name was Ben. What I remember about Ben is he was confident, thoughtful, prepared, but most impressive and memorable of all is that he was joyful. I've always thought that about Ben. He's one of those guys when he walks in the room, a smile just comes onto your face. Everyone feels that way. I was rare for a medical student given the whole hierarchy of things. I lost touch with Ben after that rotation until about a decade later when he walked back into my life. Now he was an attending surgeon in the division of otolaryngology here at Wisconsin. And for those of you that aren't in medicine, don't worry, I don't know what otolaryngology is either. In the old days, we called it ear, nose, and throat surgery, but for some reason, they don't say that anymore. It's the same way the plastic surgeons don't like to call it plastics anymore. A little bit more about Ben. Ben is a wonderful, compassionate, inspiring guy. I've really enjoyed getting to know him again. A few years ago, Ben got some life-changing news, not the good kind, that put his career, his life outlook, his time with his family into jeopardy. I can't tell you how excited I am to have Ben here today to talk about his life, his outlook, that news that he got and how he handled it, and of course the huge role I played in his success. (laughs) Not really, I didn't really play any role in his success. But nevertheless, here he is, Ben Marcus. Well, Ben, welcome to the set. Thanks, really, uh, really glad to be here. It's so great to have you here, and I have to tell the audience, this is the first... uh, podcast I've done where we're actually in the same room. Just to set the stage, we're both wearing our masks. Um, We've both uh, been immunized or at least partially immunized. So hopefully we're not infecting each other. And uh, that would make for a really good second episode. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) The time I killed Ben Marcus. (laughs) (laughs) All right, great. Well, um, we might as well get right into it. Just a quick question. Do you remember Charlie and working with him? Uh, Absolutely. He was a character. Well, you know, there's another tiny little facet to that Charlie story. When I was a resident many years later at Michigan, he ended up there and lived one complex next to me. So I would be out walking my dog and every so often I would hear Charlie's voice behind me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I didn't realize that. (laughs) Did he remember who you were? Uh, Without a doubt. Like he knew I was there the whole time. (laughs) It just, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about Charlie, but one funny note uh, I wrote about him in my book, the big best-selling book that should have won the Pulitzer Prize. And uh, in the part about Charlie, I wrote how much he taught me, but also that he was an asshole. And when the, uh, they did the legal review and the lawyer was going over things and he had that underlined and he was like, well, let me ask you one question. Was he really an asshole? And I said, yeah, I think he was. And then he said, okay, then I think we're good. <laughs> but actually, Charlie taught me a lot and he brought us together. So Right. All right, well, let's start with your background. So where did you grow up? What was your family like? Uh, You could probably do a couple episodes just on that. But I I had two really different periods of my life. So I grew up uh, in Chicago. And the first eight years or so, roughly, maybe nine years, 
We lived in Wilmette, which is a suburb just north of the city. Then my parents got this idea that they would move downtown Chicago, but not like into an apartment building. They actually bought a uh, factory space in one of the original lofts down there. Wow. And they moved our whole family there. There were no schools. There were like burnt out buildings all around the place. I would go and play in a junkyard underneath Roosevelt Road. <laughs> it's all true story. And I took the bus every single day from downtown to Hyde Park to go to school. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Were your parents artists or something like my that? My mom was a, a puppeteer. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Now, that is something you don't hear every day. No. <laughs> Do you have any memories of some favorite puppets you would work with? Uh, uh, not favorite puppets, but puppets that I definitely admired because they inspired the most fear. <laughs> so, <laughs> she, yes. You know, she originally did, like, children's shows with puppets, which were frightening in their own way. But then she developed into sort of this puppet performance art that was uh, just, fr I mean, crazy. This is incredible. Yeah. I want to spend the whole episode on this, but I think we shouldn't. But yeah. did you at one point think you'd be a puppeteerist? <laughs> no. So both my parents, although very lovely people, and we're still you know, very much in touch, were very um, involved kind of in their own head spaces. So I was kind of just like on my own. I could go anywhere in the city I wanted really didn't have a curfew. And so uh, lots of interesting tales from nice. that time. Did you have brothers or sisters or? I had an older sister, yeah. Mm -hmm. And were you like a good kid or did you get into trouble a lot? Well, it was, it was all relative <laughs> because my sister, who's now a good kid, was not <laughs> a good kid. And so by comparison, I was allowed to get away with a lot. Like my mom had the congregation's choir, a Jewish congregation's choir over to her the loft. And they were all practicing and doing their thing. And my sister, who walked by with sort of, you know, several feet of raven black hair, walked by with her hair. And then oh, 30 minutes later, walked by all the ladies with a mohawk on their heads, <laughs> shaved all the way on both sides. So there was always something interesting going on. That's incredible. So it's probably hard for you to actually get a rise from anyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's I flew great. under the radar. I didn't know that about you. So how, so you grew up in Chicago and like what set you on the path to think about medicine as a career? So I, I had no interest in medicine. Uh, I went to college in Minnesota at a small liberal arts school called Carleton College. And I was getting a C in my first <laughs> biology class. Excellent. Not be, you know, mostly because I think I wasn't spending enough time on class. <laughs> but I went and saw the professor who was this lovely guy. He said, I'll make you a deal. I'll be more than happy to get you up to speed or tutor you. But you have to agree to take a second biology class. So I ended up becoming a biology major. Really, the decision to go to medicine was a late one because uh, I was very passionate about marine biology. I'd gone to Australia for a semester and done that exclusively. But I was really worried that when I turned 65, it was the strangest thing to be worried about at age 20. <laughs> but at age 20, I was desperately afraid of looking back at my life and thinking that I had wasted it. And so when I was juggling between these two career ideas, one of my floor mates was sitting in our room on my bed. His name was Anupam Karbanda. Nice guy, cardi cardiologist now in Minneapolis. Uh -huh. And he said, uh, you're really taking all the classes anyways. All you'd have to do is apply. And I, right then and there, I was like, you know what? I think I'll apply to medical school. Wow. Yeah. That's an incredible story. I have to say, I don't know many marine biologists, but it always makes me think of uh, George from Seinfeld. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he said he was a marine biologist and pulled the golf ball out of the whale's uh, blowhole. <laughs> That's the heroic marine yes. biologist. So really, it was almost like, I guess I might as well apply just in case or... Uh, yeah. I sort of stumbled into it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I tell people I kind of stumbled into it, but the, the reality is my dad went back to medical school when I was a kid and I watched him do that. And I loved Hawkeye Pierce. So those were like the two, right. uh, the two things that really inspired me. Yes. So yours is a lot different. You know, you're starting to look like Hawkeye. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. That's the biggest compliment I can never. <laughs> I just, if, Alan Aldo, if you're out there, I'm ready for you on the show. So <laughs> that'd be like my crowning glory. So, okay. So you applied and you got in, presumably. Yeah. yeah. And uh, did you get into a bunch, just uh, one or two? What, what, do you oh, remember? Gosh, if I had to so go long. back, I know, I can't remember all the number I got into, but I remember the big choice I had was between NYU and University of Chicago. I was a little biased against University. University of Chicago because I'd spent so much time there right. going to school. But I, I just, I thought that, you know, it was the better place for me. It just had a, a lot more emphasis on thinking. 
mm. about med how to learn medicine than just kind of rote memorization. And so I, that's where I decided to go. It's incredible. If you had gone to NYU, I wonder you wouldn't have met me, I guess. So. And, and, <laughs> and definitely might not be alive anymore. <laughs> In New York. Oh, yes. Yeah, that may be so. Okay, so you got into, so you came to University of Chicago, and I'm assuming the thing that got you into surgery was seeing such an incredible intern performing uh, above you. But yes. What was the real story? What got you interested in surgery? I keep saying, like, I just keep falling into these things, but I, I have this weird memory for moments. And I was walking down 57th Street, I was in front of Reaganstein Library, and I, uh, I had a pager for some reason because the med students back then thought it was cool to get like our own pagers. Right. They weren't hospital pagers. Right. That was back, back when it seemed cool before it became horrible once you were right. resident. No, I mean, the pager was a huge, very cool right. thing to back have. then. Oh, yeah. The kids now won't understand that, by the way. Right. But, like you wanted people to see your pager. Right. Especially because right. the University of Chicago ones were colored maroon. Yes. And had the, you know, the bird or phoenix or whatever's on there, griffin. Anyway, so uh, I got text or uh, got paged and there were two people that I, whose labs I had applied to get into for the summer program. One was Locke McDonald, who was a young neurosurgery attending. And the other was Bruce Gewertz. Ah, yes. And I talked to the neurosurgery attending on the phone. I went into one of the you know halls and, and got on the phone and he was fine, but he just didn't seem very warm. And then I talked to Bruce Gewertz, who, you know, we both know very well. And I said, wow, I love this guy. I was like, I don't care what, he, what he's researching. I think it would just be fun right. to spend the summer with him. And that was another really fateful decision because Bruce then transformed my whole life, not only just in my career, but he introduced me to my wife. Oh, my gosh. So, so for anyone that doesn't know, Bruce Gewertz was our chairman of surgery, was a vascular surgeon who actually was doing the case that Charlie was going to do that I pulled him out of. That's a separate thing. Um, now he's the chairman of surgery at Cedar sinai is that right? Right. And most charismatic guy ever. And if I remember correctly, really good friends with Harrison Ford. And yeah. uh, he's actually in the movie The Fugitive. He, he was just sort of a boy genius. I mean, he was chairman at 40, early right. 40s. Right. But uh, when I was on the first date with my now wife, she asked me to describe Dr. Gewertz. And I said, you know what? It's like a guy who hears Steely Dan in his head 24-7. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. He is one of these guys, these charismatic guys that you'll never forget. And I think he could hang out with anyone in the world and have fun. Absolutely. I remember you guys were really close. A couple of things. One, how did he know your wife? That has to be asked. Uh, well, he didn't because he was then dating his now wife after undergoing a difficult divorce. And she was taking art classes from my wife. So that was the connection there. Yeah. Amazing. And then um, how come you chose, I'm going to call it ENT or yeah, please. ear, nose and throat surgery, whatever, uh, rather than say general surgery or Gewertz's vascular surgery? Right. Well, you know, it was, uh, again, it's, I can really remember the moment I got to go to the operating room as a third year medical student, having spent an extra year of the lab before that year. You know, I still don't understand why, if it was me or if it was the fact that I was working in Wurtz's lab, but I got these opportunities to do a lot of stuff like bowel anastomoses, you know, really good sewing, important stuff. And I just, it just didn't click with me. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm getting to do all this stuff now and it's not making me excited. So I went right around this time of year to Dr. Gewertz's house on 57th street or 56th street. He had this like lovely town home there. Uh -huh. And I, I sat down and I told him, I was like, you know, Dr. Gewertz, Bruce, I don't, I don't want to be a general surgeon. Uh -huh. And he said, well, I don't give a shit what you do. Just <laughs> make sure you do something important, you know, give something back. He's like, you'd be a pediatrician as long as you contribute. And that was not what I was expecting. I said, well, what do you think I should do? He's like, well, take a look at, ENT and take a look at ortho and see what you like. Uh, and I did. And then I fell in love with ENT. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's totally what I would expect from Bruce uh, as well. Like, I don't think he cared so much about status or what, what you did more about the kind of person you are and right. how you're living your life. Yeah. And making it and giving back something from your work. Yeah. Just a note to any listeners who are medical students, Ben mentioned he got to do a lot back then. And just a few comments from my own side, having worked with him. One, it was a different time when yes, people got to do more. Sure. But the other thing is Ben always came prepared and super positive and he was just always around. So he developed a really great rapport 
And I think that still counts for a lot, finding a way to develop a rapport, to be present and to be positive, even right. when things are tough. And so I think people started to rely on you like I did when you were our student uh, as really part of the team, not, right. not just watching. You know, it was a different era too, in all honesty, of course. Crazy, crazy era too, <laughs> seem to remember. Okay, good. So then you liked ENT, um, you liked the, what, the mix of cases, big and small, in, uh, inpatient, outpatient, that kind of stuff? You know, what it was, was I got some very specific advice from Bruce and he said, make sure you like the every day of what you do, not the coolest thing. Mm. Who knows how much you're going to get to do the coolest thing. But if you like the every day, that's the right thing. Mm. And I remember going to clinic with Dr. Neclario and Dr. Stenson, uh, I guess both who have left now and just thinking, I was like, oh, this is cool. I could do this every day. And this isn't like the high end coolest stuff that's available in the field. You know, it'd be like matching into general surgery and saying, well, I'm only going to be happy if I can be a transplant surgeon. That's a lot of twists and turns right. to get there. So, yeah, so it was, uh, so then I said, well, then this is the right thing. That's good. That's really good advice as well. I think it's hard as a student to kind of see what the life, the everyday life is really like. You're so focused on the craziness of your rotation. Right. Often you don't actually get what it's actually like on the other side. Right. And you might have like this world expert doing these incredibly difficult things, but you might not do those, you know, if you go right. into that same field. So you have to make sure that, uh, you know, you, you like what the, the everyday is. Right. Let me ask you, uh, do you still like the everyday? Well, <laughs> so, so yeah, I do. But the weird part about what uh, my career path was that because I specialized, I don't get to do the everyday anymore. But no, I still like it. I still talk about it with the residents. I still kind of ask them about other cases they're doing. And, right. You know. So take me from there to here. So I know you went to Michigan, I believe, yeah. is where you went. And so what happened? You did your residency. I studied residency in otolaryngology at Michigan. And then I went and did a fellowship in Portland, Oregon at uh, OHSU with uh, two folks uh, that were kind of uh, early facial plastics people in ENT. So ENT has a subset of plastic surgery of the face, which you know makes sense because we do a ton of surgery of the face. And uh, over the last 30 to 40 years, it's become a more robust part of the specialty. It has a board certification. And oh, other types I didn't of things. Yeah. That. So your, what are your board certification is in? Yeah, otolaryngology with a secondary certification in uh, facial plastic surgery. Gotcha. Okay. And then you came here to Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin yeah. as your first job? First job. And now how long have you been here? I have been here 15 and a half years. Wow, I still remember the first day we bumped into each other, and I, I, I it almost seemed like the day before that we had been working together. It took right. me a minute to put it, was, it together. It was but, going into the hospital, remember yeah, that? Yes, yeah. coming from the parking lot. Right. Yeah. right. It's weird when you see someone out of context and try and put that together. Yes. So, like the early, so you came here, you were married, you had children. I was married, had two young children, mm -hmm. same house, uh, same job, and I've been here the whole time. And then I know you started building a practice, you've gotten really busy, you've done really well, you know, on the surgical side of things. Tell me the story, because I, I know, and I kind of teased it, I guess is the word I'll use early on, that I know that things were growing great for you, yeah. you know, you're really well regarded, and then I know you got a bad diagnosis. Can you take me through that, like how you first started thinking of, you know, what your symptoms were, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So there's, you know, I think it is a healthy reaction, but I always find the absurd in, in what's going on. And I, I like, it makes me laugh. <laughs> so uh, I've been working on my cholesterol and I had been doing a lot of weightlifting. This is about yeah four years ago. And I, uh, I see a physician in the Meritor side for my primary care doctor mm -hmm. And so the labs at the time, because they hadn't done all the computer stuff they've done now, you had to go into Meritor and look at it. Oh. And so I was having my residents pull up the labs. And I was like, how's my cholesterol? <laughs> and the resident was a great young person named Mark. was like, looking good. <laughs> and I said, uh, everything else look good? He said, well, your protein's kind of high. And I was like, well, I'm lifting a lot. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, right, how right. much I've forgotten since medical See, I can, I can relate to that as a, <laughs> as a pretty tough guy myself. <laughs> Right, we both had to turn sideways to go through the door. Right, exactly. For different reasons for me. But um, the resident looks at me and he says, it's really high, like um, 14. And I said, you know, I did like seriously lift a lot. 
<laughs> and I didn't think another thing about it. He didn't know what that could mean. Even probably no, probably. didn't even think about it. Mm-hmm. The next morning, were you feeling sick at all or no? No, I felt tired all the time. But you know, don't we? Don't always? we all? Yes, <laughs> yeah. So the next morning, I got the dreaded direct phone call from my primary care on my cell phone. I said, "Well, that's not good." Mm, right. And I'm thinking he's going to tell me I have to lose even more weight. Right. Right. And then he says, I have to come in. And I, and like I, immediately? Or yeah. Like, oh, God. And then I... Did he say, like, I'm worried about something? Or he just he said... said, we've got some lab abnormalities. We're going to need you to come in and get a few more labs. Uh, I don't think he wanted to scare me. He must have your head started spinning, I would think, then. A well, so then, I mean, I you know, it didn't take long to figure out, like, the differential diagnosis for, like, anemia and super high protein. And so... Did I'm you just, Google it or... I used up to date. Okay, good. Because <laughs> I would have Googled it first. Well, a little bit, of, a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. Two of those things you can solve most of the yeah, world's problems. Yeah. So I, uh, so I Google it, do the up to date, and I remember calling my wife. I was like, "Well, it's either a lymphoma or myeloma," and I remember saying, "Let's hope it's a lymphoma." Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's incredible! What yeah. was her reaction? She, she, she didn't. She's not a doctor. No, she didn't really see the humor in it the same way (laughs) I did. Um, She was very worried. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then a couple days later, I got the diagnosis. And uh, it was a Friday afternoon. It was my daughter's birthday. It was her 12th birthday. Uh But we had already planned a party for her, for just the four of us. So we had to go out to dinner and uh, hadn't really hit home yet. If you don't mind me going deep into it, how did... How did you get the diagnosis? Were you in person? Were you with your wife? Were you with uh, no, I was by myself in the pre-op holding area. Uh, you got a case. Uh, I just finished a case. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so it was like Friday afternoon, about four o'clock. I got a phone call. It was dark outside. So it must have been right around uh, this time of year. And he just said, I'm, I'm really sorry. And I said, well, what's the treatment? He's like, I don't know. I think you need a bone marrow transplant. And that's when I got Freaked out. Was like, oh. So that was from a blood test, right? They did like yeah. one of these S peps or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Whatever. Exactly. The only reason I know that I want you to know, after I heard about your diagnosis, I became convinced I had myeloma. Nice. Being that kind of guy. Sure. And it like you, it's right because I was worried I caught him. No, <laughs> I you know I'm tired all the time yeah. and my back hurts all the time. It's, yes. And then uh, I went and got tested. For it. <laughs> so, um, anyways, that just came to my mind so that so he said that and then your mind started wondering like what does this mean or oh i thought oh that's exactly how i'm gonna die yeah i thought i'm gonna be that guy who's because i was 45 mm-hmm. at the time who's just dies in the icu after a bone marrow transplant i was like that that sucks i just was like oh this is terrible but then i just i kind of uh you know, I had to go into like a survival mode. There was so much I had to do. There were so many things I had to coordinate. And there were so many things I had to do like for my family, like just to get all kinds of financial things in order that that was uh, very much the first few weeks. Do you wish you had been told a different way? I'm just curious. Or was it? Right yeah. No, I think that, um, and, and this is in no way a criticism of the yeah. physician because he yeah. Well, sometimes they feel stuck because it's a Friday afternoon. I asked and they him want about it. it last time I saw him. I yeah. said, how was that for you? Was that yeah. hard? And yeah. he said, it's the worst thing I have to do because I know you. Right. You, you know, know, I play him. golf with him sometimes. Yeah. Tricky yeah. part of so being he, a physician. And, right. Yeah. So he was very sweet. He was very kind. But uh, how would I like to find out differently? I just think that and our medical system doesn't really allow for it. You know, if I could have talked to my hematologist or, or, or someone that could have explained it to me sooner, that would have been nice instead of my imagination having right. to spend a couple right. of weeks figuring out. What know, does this mean? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it's better or worse being a doctor because like you and I both were not in that field. So we know actually not a ton or right. maybe more than the general. I, I guess nowadays I assume when I tell someone bad news, they're going to start searching it on the internet. hundred percent. And that's tough because it's a lot of information that may not, may not apply to them. Well, that's what happened um, to me. I mean, yeah. I looked it up and it was really grim, really grim. Yeah. Uh, but it's because the, you know, statistics hadn't really turned over in a while and there are all these new things. So it right. ended up being obviously was very difficult, but I think that had I not done those things for a few weeks, I would have been a little bit better headspace. Yeah, that'd have been hard. So did you, you called your wife or you? So I called my wife from the OR room and I had clinic still to go. <laughs> and then you had a dinner birthday. Yeah. And I remember telling our clinic manager, she, she was the only one I, I called in. I was like, I just can't do clinic. Yeah. I, I haven't done yeah. that ever. 
Right. And uh, she made her go away, and I went home. And then did you tell your kids, like, at that Not time? that night. Not that not, night. Not yeah. that night. Oh, my gosh. Was it hard to tell your friends, family, partners? Was that a hard, or was it easy? Well, so that's where uh, the story kind of changes. So if you fast forward about four weeks, so I just started treatment. I didn't stop working. I don't really have a good explanation for that other than I just felt like some sort of normalcy would be better than sitting around the house. So I was at work and I, there was a number of online resources for multiple myeloma. And I was looking at one of them and they had this trek to Everest. Yes. And they had a, two spots left and they said, well, if you're interested, you know, here's the form, put it in. So I, so I did. And the next morning I heard from the director uh, who I'm now friends with, and she wanted to interview me for 30 or 40 minutes. And then after she did that, she's like, well, great. You want the spot? And I said, I'll take it. Now, did you know anything about mountain climbing or Everest? No, I hadn't told anybody about this, let alone my spouse. <laughs> so I had to come home and say, good news, bad news. Uh, the good news is I'm going to go climb to Everest Base Camp. The bad news is it's in like 12 months. And I didn't even know like if I was going to be alive because I hadn't even started. I mean, I was a two weeks into treatment. Wow. Um, and, you know, it can go a lot of ways at the, at the early part of it. Yeah. And for some reason to, to this day, which I'm unbelievably grateful for, my wife was like, okay. Do Did what you, you think do. you think you needed some sort of goal to strive for, or you needed like something totally outside your life to like, clear your head or do you have any sense of that uh you know when i when i signed up for it and i thought why am i doing this i i had this distinct thought i think i was convincing myself that i was going to be fine um i mean i kept working i was you know planning this huge excursion which is difficult you know even if you're yeah. healthy you know and, and on the surface it looks like it's some sort of denial Right. I was about to ask. Right. That. It's yeah. very easy to be like, oh, you're just in denial. But it wasn't that because I was very clear and having conversations at this time with like my financial advisor about like when I die, I need this, 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 oh, wow. setting all that stuff up. Um, so I wasn't delusional or in denial about it, but believing that I could get through this and do this, uh, I think kept me going. It's really amazing. Something, well, I mean, and of course, the more succinct way to say that was, I had something to look forward to. Right, right. You know, just as an aside, I've always had this obsession with Everest and mountain climbing. I, I, I think probably the first time I read about it was the Crack Hour book, yes. Into Thin Air, which I love. But um, mountain climbing has always fascinated me, even though I've not done it other than some little rock climbing. And just one other aside, I don't know, you know, Alex Hunnell, the guy who free climbed uh, yes, yes. Uh, El Capitan? And his movie. Uh, yeah, because I went to college with uh, Jimmy Chin. Oh, the yeah, director. Yeah, right. he was a class below me. It's a small school. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, was, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just find uh, this whole world incredible. So, so then, did you, uh, did you feel sick at all in that first year? Like, other than being tired, which maybe is the same as you always felt? Or was there uh, anything? You mean like while I was in treatment the first year? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because like, mostly the steroids. You know, you'd be on these big crashing doses of decks. Mm -hmm. And then you crash. But doc, my doctor, Dr. Calder, had kind of, I don't know, it just seemed all very well planned out. Like I would kind of crash on the weekends. Mm. You know, I just, I think I just ground through it. I don't, in retrospect, I don't even know why. But like I would go golf and walk 18 holes. I just kind oh, of wow. refused to, to let it do that. And it's not like I'm some like fitness fanatic or any yeah. of these things. It yeah. was just... I don't know. It was my way of refusing to lose the things that I liked to do at that early stage, I guess. It's just, uh, and, and maybe I really thought at some, at some level, if I believed it, it would make it happen. Yeah, yeah. Did you feel like your life was forever changed or? Oh, from this thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, there's not a single day. That doesn't go by that I don't wonder how much more time. Is that right? Oh, yeah, because, I mean, it has like a 99% recurrence. Um, so it's it's definitely coming back. And the question is, you know, will, will I just swat it down again or will it mutate? Yeah, so even now, like my 10-year survival is 50%. Is that right? Yeah, and I'm five, four, four years into it. So Now, you did not need a bone marrow transplant, right? Uh, not yet. I'm in a study that looks to hold it off. But that is something likely in your future. Uh, but not a, a peripheral stem cell transplant. The the bone, like a full aloe transplant, is uh, 
it hasn't been shown to be that helpful for myeloma. So what does that mean? Your own bone? Your yeah. Own, so they yeah. take out your stem cells, then they, right, you right. know, uh, obliterate everything and put it back in. This shows you how much surgeons know about right. <laughs> the treatment of myeloma, but I see. So, so you really were faced and continue to be faced with your mortality in a way you were not expecting at the age of 45 or now you must be 49 or something. Yeah, 49. Yeah. Uh, it has been, and not in a kind of cliched way, but it has been a complete life changer. So mm. my ego died. Mm. I just didn't care anymore. Like, so I used to look at the flyers that would come for this rhinoplasty meeting. Why am I not in that meeting? Right. And, you know, we'd have these phone calls and things with friends strategizing stuff about our academy and different stuff. And I just don't care. I mean, I care about our academy and I work for them still and do things to, to help our specialty. But uh, so, yeah, so this, this sort of ruthless competitiveness with others just died yeah that it just died that day right i'm still competitive with myself but i think that's a healthier thing right. uh, like wanting to still be the best version of, of me professionally and otherwise uh the other thing uh that totally 100 percent changed was my relationship with my family and, and mm. my friends i mean it, it was you know in some ways it was very liberating because i no longer had any fear of like missing out like that i wasn't doing certain things with certain friend groups or I wasn't doing enough of one particular activity or another. I just really took, I mean, I'm not far from perfect. You know, I still get annoyed and right. when you know, your 18 year old doesn't take out the trash and all those things, but there I was, it, it just changed my perspective on the day to day. I mean, everything, everything is different. You use the word liberating. My next question was going to ask, if it was freeing in some way, because I do think illness, I don't know, sometimes when I'm working and I'm stressed at work and you look at the patients who are dealing with illness, and I wrote about this in my book, yeah. that, that there's almost a freeing aspect to it where they can just forget the otherworldly hassles and really focus on, right. not that any of us want to be ill, but isn't there some truth to that? Well, so I think it's a really interesting thing. I think it is liberating in different ways for different people. I think disease or significant health change can be liberating, but it, it's certainly, I, I feel it's definitely not for everyone. In the ways that it's been liberating for me, rather than disease take me away from the concerns of the day-to-day, -day, disease that is potentially time-limiting has made time slow down for me. I always used to be rushing for the next thing. Very, very difficult to be in the moment. I mean, it's just a weird thing to say. I'm happier now. Yeah, yeah. Like, if I look at my life right now during this horrible pandemic, I've still been happier than I was before I got sick. When you know you're going to die probably sooner, maybe not. You don't, you're just not scared in the same mm. way anymore. You know, I'm just, I don't want to miss stuff. I, I want to live as long as I can. I can honestly say, like, I'm not scared anymore of dying. I had to, I had to face that, mm. like, in a real serious way. Like, when you're sitting in Carbone on a Friday afternoon waiting for your That's our cancer center. Oh, yes, 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 in the cancer center, and half your faculty friends are walking by being like, oh, hey, what are you doing here? And when you're sitting there and you're feeling all those things, I mean, it's very, very weighty. But once you get through that, I used to wonder, like, this is the reason I went into medicine. The whole reason I went into medicine is I was worried about wasting my life. And now I feel this incredible calm that I, my life's been great. I'm really happy. I sometimes feel odd about that because I'm happy because I have an incurable cancer. It's a very strange mindset to be in. But my every day is better than it was before. I actually really get what you're talking about, though, with this allowing you to live in the moment, because I think we are probably so many professionals, but I know I have struggled with that, right? I mean, you you grow up trying to be successful, and many, and many of us in our field ha have been, right? And you're always pushing for the next thing. I just can't wait till I get to that, or I get to that, you know, finish training, become an associate professor, you know, get this grant, whatever. And I found it's a lot harder than I expected to live in the moment. I never thought I'd be that guy. And then it's suddenly, you're suddenly that guy or girl, obviously, where you have trouble settling the mind and being in the moment. 
And yeah. um, it seems like this has given you a perspective that has really been helpful for that, positive in that way. Yeah, even with the mundane, I wouldn't even, I used to not even let myself watch TV because I was always something I shouldn't mm-hmm. be doing. And, you know, sometimes I'll sit down and I'll watch a science fiction thing because I love science fiction. Just because. And I never did that. I'm 49 years old. It took me 47 years to get to that, to get to that point. Maybe I would have gotten there, but I don't think so. It's kind of interesting. So that rather than feel like I might have limited time left, I need to make every second this crazy, amazing memory. You're, you're allowed to just live each day or live each moment. It, it, it is exactly right. Being in the moment has nothing to do with the lofty goals of the moment. Being in the moment is oh, I'm on my couch and the dog is here and I have this like delicious soda. <laughs> I'm going to really enjoy this moment. Because life is made up of all those little moments. And some of them are about work and some of them are about love. But you don't see any of them if you don't look. That's endemic to our profession is the inability to be except in surgery, right? And that's the reason why all of us love being in the operating room is because that's where things slow down. And you're in the moment. You're in that flow. And for us, it's so elusive in the rest of the parts of our lives. Right. And, you know, the thing about surgery is it does allow you to block absolutely everything out. Yeah. You know? And I imagine athletes feel that way when they're right. playing a game. But you're 100% focused on what it is you're doing and doing it as well as you can. There's a real satisfaction to that. It's really fascinating. I hope this is helpful to some people out there who either have illness or are afraid of having illness. Obviously, it's not something you wanted, but it's given you something. I think what you said earlier, by the way, you're not afraid of dying but you mentioned that you, you don't want to miss things. I, I kind of believe that that is the saddest part of dying is that you just miss things that others around you that you love are doing, right? right. Th- that's the saddest part of it, not not some other accomplishment you could have had or, a, a, you know, some place you wanted to travel to. Yes. I mean, I think that uh, when I say miss things, I'm talking about moments, not achievements. Yeah. No, yeah, those those great moments, just like when you're, teenage child wants to talk to you about something that they're excited about. And it can be something as, you know, mundane as like their school project or a video game or whatever, yeah. but they're talking and actually putting down your stuff and listening. Right. Might be five minutes, but I, that I post disease, that was something I was able to do. And again, not perfect, not all the time, but a lot more than I used to. Yeah. Are you still as busy clinically as you were before? You're busier. Busier? Yes. You haven't thought like, I'm going to cut back. That's not. Well, so it was a, it was a very complicated process for me because I was advised to cut back initially just because of the treatment plan. Uh, And what I discovered was that although work had been guilty of augmenting the space where you're not in the moment, right? So work had taken over a lot of space. There was a lot of joy at work as well. And when you took out some of the parts of work of trying to, uh, you know, achieve certain things, the really great moments of work came through. And so, no, it actually made me very happy. Mm. Uh, And, you know, at least for the moment, as time goes on, if I need different treatment and I have to slow down, I think I'll be smarter about that this time. I'm not as young as I was when it first happened. i Feel like I guess the best way to say it is that work, when viewed through the right lens, does not impede you from being present in the other aspects of your life. Mm. Work or anything can take over your life and cloud over the other aspects. Mm. And so now I think I found a better balance now, even though I'm busy. Are you a better doctor now? Oh, for sure. Yeah. In two different ways. One is that all of us, well, you exclusively, but for someone in otolaryngology, not all the patients are sick. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Some just have sinus problems. I mean, they're sick, but they don't haven't had a liver transplant. They're not, they haven't flirted with death. Right. But even for some things that are as simple as Botox that I do, every so often there'll be this patient that has had a recent diagnosis and they'll tell me that it could be something serious. And I will sometimes share with them my diagnosis mm-hmm. and just let them know I understand. I mean, I understand like every detail with their medical problem, 
is <laughs> being right. a surgeon. Right. But that I understand what it feels like to be scared and what it feels like to have this difficult road ahead of you. I didn't think much of it, but you know, in talking to my wife about it, you know, she reminded me of just how significant that would feel uh, to have someone really truly empathize with you, not give you empathetic behavior, but really empathize. Right. So that part's been great. And then I'm just a lot more forgiving, you know, especially mm -hmm. in my field with some of the cosmetic surgery, there are patients that are very demanding and sometimes it's difficult to understand what their remaining concerns are. And rather they get annoyed or angry, I just kind of try to approach them with kindness. And I found that that has, as simple as that sounds, it's actually really hard. That was one of the things that I really wanted to do with my time as a physician going forward after the diagnosis was kind of, you know, bring health and happiness to people. Uh, but making people happy is really a nice reason to still be here. That's so well said. And you wanted to go back and talk about telling friends and family. Oh, yes. So we had a couple of weeks where we were trying to figure out what we we're going to do. And then I had joined this Everest thing mm -hmm. and I had made a commitment to raise twenty or $30,000 oh. to join the team. And so we kind of had to make it public and we you know, right. did this big fundraising thing because of social media, it just kind of spread. What, what I find really interesting is that amongst my friends and colleagues, most people know, but when I meet people in Madison that don't know me personally or you know, come see me as a patient, they don't have any idea, which is, which is kind of perfect. Yeah, right. Now that reminds me, that's when I found out you had the myeloma when I right. heard about that yeah. fundraiser. And that's when I decided I had myeloma. Yes. So tell me a little about Everest. Um, was it amazing? Was it everything you expected? Was it scary? What, what was that? Yeah, so it was an interesting group. So this Multiple Myeloma Foundation had this idea of starting these trips, and they had done a few to like Kilimanjaro, where they would pair patients with myeloma physicians and have them do these sort of acts of, of strength. Uh, uh, to demonstrate that patients could still lead happy and uh, productive yeah. lives. People were from all over the country. So I was uh, from Wisconsin. There were people from uh, Connecticut, Seattle, Texas, kind of, you know, all over the map. We flew to Nepal and we all then went up to Lukla, which is the start of the, of the base camp trail. It was just intense. I had trained pretty hard. Physically, it was very difficult, but manageable. The thing I did not expect was how unbelievably beautiful it was. So every bend you would come around would be this vista that was better than the last. Yeah. You know, it was grueling. We lost about four people along the way uh, who had to be helicoptered down. Okay. So there was this definite sense of adventure. I mean, it was, you know, you're sleeping in the later nights at like 17,000. There's one night where you sleep at like 17,000 wow. or 16,000. It was invigorating. I, yeah. That's the best way to describe it. I hardly thought about having cancer. I was just super excited to be there. The people who I, I, were, I was with were all, you know, really positive people. Uh, and so it was just, um, it was a very freeing moment. When we were up at the base camp, we all had just this cathartic uh, release. Uh, I was blubbering. And, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, th I think that it was everything I had hoped for. It was more beautiful than I could have hoped for. And it was intense. And it felt so good that it was intense, that it was pushing me, but I chose it. Yeah, I, so, so I even went and did another one with the same group the following year to Patagonia. Oh, wow. Uh, just because it was such a good experience. Yeah. I have to ask because I, I'm one of those guys who watches like the travel show where they'll show like the 10 worst airports to fly into. Yes. And they well. apparently flying in there, like they fly once a day and then they recertify new pilots when the old ones crash. It's like, yes. really, was that pretty harrowing? Or? Well, so our flight to Lukla was even worse. So we, we, we go through Kathmandu and we get to the regional local airport, which is pretty uh, underdeveloped. And we're waiting and waiting. Two hours go by, three hours go by because they have to wait for the winds to die down. We were on a tight schedule. We had a, a filming crew that was with us uh -huh. and uh, the group leader called back to the United States and said, we, we're we not going to be able to get up there. We'd be a day behind. Uh, we need to get helicopters. And so they, they okayed the expenditure for the helicopters 
And then the helicopters get up in the air. There's like four or five. Yeah, that doesn't seem safe for us. <laughs> well, this is where it gets funny. Our first, our helicopter was the first one, and our pilot's name was Priya, which is goddess of the wind, and she's this beautiful Nepalese woman wearing kind of a pretty formal, like you know, Air Force style hat or uh-huh. pilot's hat, and she flies us up here. There's a lot of wind. We're like, oh, sure, she knows what she's doing. <laughs> And so we pull into Lukla, which is the craziest looking airport. It's basically this runway that stops dead yeah. into a mountain. Right. There's no bailout. There's like, no so, bailout. Yeah. Right. And she gets us down. She comes out. She's wearing a flak suit. She shakes her hair out <laughs> under her hat, lights a cigarette. And one of, the, one of the people who's with us is just like, will you marry me? <laughs> and she says, in perfect English, I get that a lot. <laughs> But then she gets on the radio and we find out none of the other helicopters oh made gosh. it. So there's f- like three of us patients, one doctor guy and uh, one guy named Dawa who really didn't speak much English. And Dawa just said, well, time to go. <laughs> they didn't crash, of course. For no, yeah, okay. no. Just but they got up and the wind was too, too strong. Hard, yeah. I guess Priya, it didn't bother Priya went for it. I have to tell you, as someone who used to go on a lot of organ procurements, yes. we had a few bad flights, and one time the pilots got out and kissed the ground, and I was like, guys, we should not be flying if you're kissing the ground. That's where you realize how much bigger nature is than yes. one human being, Yes, which I'm sure. I, I don't want to take too long, but there are a couple of things I want yeah, to please. bump into. So this, this podcast is not about COVID, but nevertheless... What was it like coming into a pandemic knowing that you had this illness? Because I know you've been working. I see you all the time in the hospital. Was it less scary, more scary? Did it, how did that affect you? Well, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I called my doctor and I'm on chemotherapy still, but my numbers are okay. So my white blood cells are okay. I make appropriate antibodies, which, you know, this type of cancer can interfere with the antibodies that right. you make. She said, well, I can't tell you you're not at risk. Right. And she's like, I think you can work. And then, uh, so I just was, I've been very religious with wearing an N95 every day, every procedure. You, you probably have a mark on your nose. I do. I do yeah. have a little mark, but, um, and then, you know, when some of the data started coming out that providers with the proper PPE right. had surprisingly low infection rates overall, yes, uh, that I thought, you know, I think this is fine. Yeah. And uh, I'm you know, looking forward to getting my second vaccine. Yes. So it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't bad. Uh, it didn't really change my outlook other than adopting some safety practices. Just being careful. Yeah. And the last question I wanted to ask, can I still describe you as joyful? Are you still a joyful person? Uh, I would say I'm more joyful, definitely, because there's not much I want and there's so much I have to be grateful for. I mean, would I like to be a better golfer? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I've got, I mean, I've got a great family. I've done so many great things personally and professionally. Being joyful is basically the outward sign of being grateful, right? If you are grateful, you're often joyful. And I think that uh, I'm extremely grateful. And as a result, uh, it's hard to be in a bad mood. That's incredible. I did. I have to ask one more thing. Mm-hmm. I, I've been ending asking everyone this. Do you have um, any advice, whether it be to young med students going in our field or young people going in other fields, maybe even your 18-year-old son about life uh, or about how to live it or about career or anything you'd want to leave them with? I have a very interesting father-in-law that could fill up several of your podcasts, <laughs> but he does occasionally dole out some good advice. And I use this for our own residents, which is you win by winning, which means it is not about what anyone else is doing or, or what you're besting of what they're doing. It is about doing your best every single time and knowing that you will fail and knowing that you'll be disappointed and knowing that things don't always work out, but making sure that if you did the absolute best you could, you have nothing to regret. And so that's piece number one. And that's definitely something that I think is useful to some of our our young students and trainees because, you know, they're in such competitive modes and in such competitive fields you know, they're like Ricky Bobby. They feel like if they're not first, they're last. <laughs> but like Ricky Bobby's dad said, you know, there's second, there's third, there's fourth, there's all kinds of things. So that's thing number one. And I'd say thing number two, the advice that I would say about how to live 
with the caveat that I'm far from an expert. If you're not noticing what's going on around you, you don't have a lick of a prayer of enjoying your future, you know? So every little tiny thing from the squirrels in your backyard to, you know, noticing something that you didn't see in the street the other day. I mean, all these little tiny things are everything. So there's so much, there's so much fascinating joy to have out there in the world that you just got to find yours. And, and, and I think the rest uh, takes care of itself. That's so great. I, honestly, I could take a lot of that advice to heart myself. I could be better at that, but um, this has just been an incredible conversation. I could go on for hours and uh, maybe we'll, we'll bring you back on uh, for our next, I don't know, for your next big trip or your 10 year anniversary. Or I think there's a lot better chance we won't be on anymore as a podcast than anything <laughs> else, but uh, this has been a joy for me, honestly. To well, talk well to you. thank you. I, I, you know, um, I think that you taking this over would be such a great thing. Every single person has a story. Yes. You just have to find the right questions to ask them. Yeah, that's so right. The most important thing to me is that people are honest with themselves and they live, live the story that they want to live. Right. And I think you're so right about you can get so caught up in these things you're supposed to do or competing with people around you and you forget to be in the moment. And yeah. um, if I could give that gift to everyone, uh, right. that freedom to do that without having to get illness to see that. Right. Uh, and, and the knowledge that that doesn't mean you're not you're doing that 100 percent. Right. If even if that's your intent, I think you'll be a happier person. Yes. OK, Ben, thank you so right. much. It's great having you on the set and I uh, hope everyone enjoyed it. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean and Stitcher. Invite your friends to listen in if you have any. And if you're feeling generous, rate us on your favorite podcast app, but only if you're going to give us a good rating. It really does make a huge difference. Thank you so much. The Surgery Set is a production from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Josh Mesrich. Quentin Tarantino did not direct it. It was recorded by Josh Mesrich and edited by J.P. Swenson. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app and don't hesitate to let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at the set, thank you for listening. You are likely a better person than you were just 30 minutes ago. You are very welcome. <laughs>